Hello, and welcome back to Industry Town. I'm Brian Norris, and I am so excited to introduce today's guest, the wonderfully talented actress and now filmmaker Lynn Chen. Lynn recently made her filmmaking debut with I Will Make You Mine, a feature film which she wrote, produced, directed, and stars in. The movie was supposed to make its world premiere at the 2020 South by Southwest Film Festival, but... As we all know, that festival was canceled. So instead, the movie will be premiering on VOD and streaming services May 26th, and you can pre-order the movie now on iTunes. I was lucky enough to see an advanced copy of the film, and it is wonderful. Please, please check it out. It's beautiful. It's human. It's vulnerable. It's a romantic dramedy with a lot of wonderful music in it. It's about love and creativity and art and how those all evolve as we age. Um, And yeah, it's got a hell of an original soundtrack, which you can stream. So please, check out the movie check out the soundtrack just a little about lynn she's best known as an actress with credits in over 50 tv shows like shameless and silicon valley but she's also worked in major films audiobooks and video games i talked with lynn about her experience as a first-time filmmaker and her road to this film uh, how she managed the festival cancellation uh, how she deals with the feeling that we all know of imposter syndrome we had a great discussion about that and of course the movie itself from fundraising to the magic they cultivated on set so enough chatting enough interest here is Lynn. Lock it up. Very quiet and still. Ready. Scene one, take three, A mark. Alright. Closing this. Closing this. Go out of the way. Hi, we're we're both recording. We're seeing each other on Zoom. We are 21st century people. We're it's really it. happening. It is. It is. It's lovely to connect with you. Happy Sunday. It's great to be here. Happy Sunday. Thanks yeah. for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for being on Industry Town. Um, it, I actually haven't done an intro yet. This is Lynn Chen. Thank you for being Hi. here. Everyone listening will have already heard a lovely intro for you, but welcome, welcome. <laughs> Thank um, you. Let's just start with just a little bit of life right now, uh, just because you know you and I haven't chatted much about life in quarantine. Can you give me like a high and a low, and if you have like an absurd purchase during quarantine? An absurd purchase, I love it. Um, I have been quarantining at home uh, with my husband mm-hmm. in our apartment, where we also filmed the movie that I directed. So it's been a little bit surreal because I've been um, very busy conducting interviews and doing press for the movie from the same place where I filmed it and edited it. And now I'm going to have the premiere there. So really sick of this place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I can't think of a better place to be in. It's it feel there's no place I feel safer and more cozy and more equipped to handle all of this. So a high has been um, feeling safe and being really busy um, with the promotion of the movie, which is exciting. Um, did you want a low? Yeah, no, I'll take a low. It, you know, it makes everyone feel just way more human, you know? <laughs> I mean, there's I, I have relatives who work uh, as COVID nurses and it's 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 hard you know to not be able to see them and hear the stories that are happening and can't even imagine um it's just very frustrating and um not feeling like you can't do anything yeah you know so certain amount of powerlessness yeah absolutely that there's there's that and then um an absurd purchase i mean i guess it's not that absurd but i did convince myself the other day that i needed to get tie-dye sweatsuit like a, a sweatsuit set that was tie-dye. Like I, I saw like three 
three people on Instagram with them. And I was like, I must have one. And then I went down this rabbit hole of trying to get them all sold out, by the way. Oh, yeah. You anything. Can't get anything. Anything. Sweatpants? No, 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 no. Yeah. All gone. And so finally I settled on um, a tie-dye sh- t-shirt and a tie-dye miniskirt. They arrived in the mail. And then I was like, I'm not wearing a freaking miniskirt. <laughs> like, so I don't have the like, I don't have like the cute outfit that I had like envisioned myself lounging around. I'm not going to lie around in a miniskirt. So I had the tie-dye top and the miniskirt's just like waiting to be, you it know, seems like you just- I feel like it's the outfit. It's the it's the cuteness of the outfit. Um, so I feel like I spent too much money on something I'm not wearing. It sounds like you ordered something to go to Coachella head. in or something like a yeah. tie-dye miniskirt. It seems like you are partying is what's going to happen here. <laughs> no one, no one's able to see me in my miniskirt. Um, like even if I wore it for all my Zoom meetings, no one would see it. No one would know. No, it's, we get the beautiful thing where we're all like news anchors right now, where no one knows if we're even wearing pants. Yeah, exactly. Just the collared <laughs> shirt and the tie up. Business on the top, party on the bottom. <laughs> tie dye miniskirt on the bottom. Um, I'm curious by doing all of that work in your apartment, from creating the film to finishing the film to all of the press. Do you find that your apartment is stimulating more creativity or that at some point it feels like I've, I've done enough here and now it feels uh, maybe constraining? I feel like it's almost like meditative, you know, Ooh. it's like when when you go to a certain, you know, when you meditate, you're supposed to go to the same place every single time and then your body just knows. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very strange because, you know, it's my living room where I literally do everything. I eat there. I, I sometimes sleep there. I do puzzles there. I watch TV there. I, I do everything there except for, you know, sleep at night. And so um, I think that almost like when I get there and I open my computer, it's almost like my body immediately is like time to get into the flow. And um, I'm, I'm lucky I'm going to knock on wood because uh, so far, in the last few years, every single time I sit down to do the work, um, it comes to me. And I think that that has a lot to do with being in this space. Cause I, cause we did, uh, my husband edited the movie and we did, you know, sometimes over the course of those couple months decide, Oh, let's go to Ojai or like, like, let's go someplace else to go do this. And we would, and, you know, automatically just being in a different space, having a different setup automatically just puts you in this other you know, your head, it takes your head and your body like a minute to adjust, you know, like you when you're not just like there in the flow, like easily going to the kitchen and back, <laughs> like you don't have that, you don't have the same exact thing. So um, I do think that it's actually been, been good for us, but I do wish we were able to get out of here, yeah. <laughs> take no, I, some breaks. I think those uh, travel for work, creativity, kind of inspiration things happen a lot better when you kind of live there. Like Nick Pizzolatto famously used the Ojai Valley Inn to write True Detective, but I think he like moved in there for a month or a couple months and then you can get that regular routine yeah. going. It could be hard when you're figuring it out and you feel a little bit like, well, I'm on vacation right now. Am I going to really yeah. sit my butt down and work? Well, uh, we did have, we did go to Ojai and there was like a moment because it was our anniversary, um, where was a moment when my husband realized, like, oh, this setup at the at the Ojai, what we weren't at the Ojai Valley, but at whatever inn we were staying at, the um, desk was not like giving his his it, like he was getting shoulder pain. So then we had to move him onto the floor so that everything was flat. So then I'm on the big like beautiful romantic bed. 
telling him what to do. And he's literally on the floor, hunched over, editing the movie. And I was like, this isn't exactly how we picture <laughs> One couple's romantic is... getaway is another couple's work vacation is another couple's role play. I feel like each to their own, however you want to do it. Um, but we are here today to talk about your debut feature, I Will Make You Mine, which you so uh, kindly shared a copy of. I got to watch it just the other day, and I really love the film. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. I'm so happy you got a chance to watch it. Yeah, it's really a beautiful one. I'm excited to chat with you about it. But uh, before we just jump into the movie itself, can you just tell anyone listening right now what the movie's about and when they can hope to see it and how they can hope to see it? Sure. So this movie, I Will Make You Mine, is the third movie in a trilogy that was started in 2011 and 2012 by the filmmaker Dave Boyle. Those, the series is called Surrogate Valentine. The sequel was called Daylight Savings, and they all centered around a Bay Area musician named Go Nakamura, who plays a version of himself. These were very, like... Uh, there were buddy road trip movies, and in it, Go was sort of like this aimless wanderer who was always trying to figure out who the love of his life was. There was always these women, and they showed up, and then, they were, then they'd get away. And each ending of these movies uh, were always a cliffhanger. And so I was in these two movies, uh, along with two other actresses who were in the second movie, where there was a love triangle. And... When we went to uh, we went to South by Southwest with both of those movies, and when we were doing the festival circuit, Dave Boyle always said that this was going to be a trilogy, and it was going to be the lowest budget trilogy ever made. So flash forward uh, to 2018, I'm hiking with Dave. I find my DVD while I'm Marie Kondoing my place, and it says the trilogy on it. So I just and I wasn't doing anything. So I just asked him, "Hey, Dave, um, when are you going to finish that trilogy?" And yeah, he said, where's Never. my movie? <laughs> He said, he <laughs> He's said, like, what? I'm never going to do that. Wow. So when he said that, um, basically, long story short, we agreed that I would do it. And um, so when I decided to tell the story, I decided to tell it from the female perspective. So I took the two character, the three characters from the movie and I all the feminine characters and I told it from their eyes. And so instead of being this like dude movie where they're hitting the road and there's a lot of comedy. It's now a movie about longing and desire and aging and what it feels like to realize that you are 10 years older and your life is not what you thought it was going to be. And these three women all have a shared history. And that is their ex-boyfriend, Go Nakamura, uh, who is now no longer a musician, but a father. And it's about, you know, the realities of life. And it's shot in black and white because the other movies were also filmed in black and white. So I think that adds like this very dreamy quality to it. Um, and the movie was supposed to have premiered at South by Southwest uh, this year, it, but there was no festival. So we are lucky that we were acquired by Gravitas Ventures before the festival so we will be available on vod and cable and anywhere you can watch streaming also dvd um on may 26th oh fantastic do you know so if i were just going to sit down on may 26th at my television streaming device am i going to like the apple store is it yeah on... anywhere uh, apple amazon youtube vimeo playstation cable anywhere if I pull up to a gas station and they have a screen, maybe I can pay them money. They can <laughs> they anywhere, might. anywhere. It's at, it's, it's at Target uh, for pre-order. I was very excited to see it on my app. That's amazing. That's got to yeah. feel really exciting. And It is. 
Um, so let's take a step away from the movie before we get there, because I want people to know a little bit more about you. I want to little learn a little bit more about you. Talk to me about your your journey to becoming a filmmaker, because this is your debut feature. You've been acting for a while. So tell me, uh, how did you first find yourself uh, even contemplating becoming a filmmaker? Was it just an inspiration while you're on a hike with Dave, or is this something that you've been thinking about, you know, kind of percolating somewhere? I'm so happy to be talking to you about this because I really feel like it was during my class with John that I took in 20. I started, I went back to class after a very long hiatus um, in 2017. So a year before I, I wrote the movie. And I was at a place in my career, you know, I've been acting since I was five years old. So it had been several decades. I was about to turn or I had just turned 40. And I really just felt like I'd done everything I could. In, in terms of like trying to be an actor. And um, obviously I had tried producing, or not even tried, I thought about producing. I thought about writing. I, I did all those things that, that everyone's like, you gotta create your own content if you wanna work. And I just felt like this old woman, you know? Like, and I just felt like I was, being, I was gonna be put out to pasture you know, like all, like everything they say about a woman in their 40s, especially women of color. Um, I just felt like, uh, this is like kind of it. And um, the reason I took John's class, uh, I hadn't been in class for a long time, as I said, because um, I'd been working steadily. And I, I always believed that, like, working actors don't have to go back to class, um, which we all know is not true. Yeah, but we've uh, all had that thought. We've all been there. Yeah, but, like, also there was the thing of, like, oh, I can't get back into class. And, like, because last time I'd been in class, it was, like, I was young, too. And I just couldn't be around, like, young energy because I felt like it was going to depress me. And make me cynical. And I was just scared. So and how did you make that choice? How did you actually... I mean, that's a vulnerable thing to do. It's vulnerable in general. But then with all those anxieties surrounding it, how do you take the plunge? So the crazy thing that happened was um, right as I started announcing to everyone that I was quitting the business. And for real this time. Not like I'm quitting the business and then turning around and being like, you hear that? <laughs> you hear that business? And then, you know... <laughs> Yep. coming right back. Yep. I really meant it. I really meant that I was going to quit. Um, I found out that I, a short I had done a few years back, uh, had been in the NBC uh, film fest, shorts film festival, and I won the award for best actor. And the award was a holding deal with NBC. And even though I knew that was cool and that was like, like I was very happy to take that holding deal, I still had been in the business long enough. I knew enough people who had also won this award that like, I knew it wasn't going to cha really change my career. I knew I would just get some money and then I would still continue to not audition. <laughs> and I, but one of, one of my uh, deals with them was that they were also going to pay for acting classes. And so I was like, I'm just going to take advantage of what they're giving me while I figure out what my next step in life is going to be. Okay. Um, so I'll take these classes Mm -hmm. And I will, um, you know, take the, my paid vacation and I'll try writing, you know. And so when I went back into class with John and I've told John this, I felt like I got my mojo back because when I went in there and first of all, yeah, there were young people, but there were also people who were not so young. And just being around everyone at the, who like was just going up and swinging at the bat made me want to go up and swing at the bat again. And so... During those months that I was in class, I, you know, like so much of what we do in class is also like trying to, um, we direct one another and we, we watch each other and we give advice and we create from that, from like a place of nothing you create. And 
those little baby steps were always something that just like made me think not that I was good at it, but that like, oh, this is actually enjoyable for me. This is actually something that is making me happy. Um, so I definitely felt also during that time when I was with that NBC holding deal during that year, I was like having meetings where they'd say, and we'll hook you up with a showrunner and they'll write a show for you. And I, I knew that was BS too, but I decided, well, you know, while I have their emails, <laughs> I'm going to write a pilot and I'm going to see if I can get a meeting from this because I'm going to hold them to it because they're not going to hook me up with the showrunner. <laughs> and so I wrote a I wrote a pilot that year, my first my first pilot ever, and it and I sent it to them and they did I did get a meeting with the head of NBC comedy from it and it was enough um it was enough of a a push and a validation for me that I thought, "Hey, you know, I've read a million scripts before." Um so even though I'm not trained and even though like I don't do well with the outline and the postcard, not the postcards, the index cards yeah. and all that other stuff that writers do that, that doesn't feel organic to me. I think I got something here. And so when I went on that hike with Dave Boyle and he told me that he wasn't going to do that third film, when I said to him, what if I did, what if I do it? I don't know what I meant. I, di I, I certainly didn't mean, why don't I produce and write and direct it and star in it? And have my I, husband I didn't, edit it and we'll do it all in my apartment. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't. That's not what I was thinking. I guess what I was thinking was, what if I help bring this to fruition? Because I, I, I want to finish the story. And I feel like I'm the only person who can do it. Because at that point, Dave wasn't going to do it. Go had said he was going to write a script, but it had been seven years and he hadn't. And for me, I just felt like, well, at the very least, I could write it. And at the very least, I can be in it. And at the very least, I can like try to find people to help do it. And when Dave said to me, great, I'll let you, I'll let you direct it. And I was like, wait, really? And he said, I'll help you do it. I knew at that moment that that was like a mentorship and an agreement that I had to hold him to because it was an opportunity. And so I wrote that first draft on a plane to Thanksgiving um, in, in, the, in that week. I wrote it on the plane there and I wrote it on the plane back and I, and I banged out that first draft and I sent it to him and I was like, what do you think? So do and you think, I have to ask you about this though. So if you're going home for Thanksgiving, talk about revisiting your life, talk about relationships that you have decades of history with. Obviously family and Thanksgiving is not quite the same as romantic relationships being revisited, but did that kind of nostalgia and re-examining of life and the anticipation of seeing close people, did that fuel that script? Do you feel like yeah. those things were related? Yeah, for sure. Like when I opened up that computer on the plane ride there and I thought about that first scene, that's what I was thinking of was of seeing people who I hadn't seen in a while. And, you know, every single time, I think as an every actor can can relate to this of like going back and people being like, so what are you doing now? And you're like, well, I have this commercial airing. And they're like, but why aren't you on ER? Or, that's a bad example. But like, that's what I've been hearing for most of my life. But why aren't you why aren't you Sandra Oh yet? Um, and, uh, and that feeling of like, having these dreams. And when you're I feel like when you're younger, it keeps coming back to age, but that is the main 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 theme in this movie of like, when you're younger, you still have that hope. You're just like, not yet. But as you get older, you start to realize, not yet, and maybe not ever. And um, I was definitely thinking about that when I was writing this, because all, all of these women are at this point in their lives where some of them have actually achieved what 
they wanted. You know, they have like these, the, the character I play, Rachel, she definitely looks like on the outside that she has, you know, what most people want. But yet there's this like dissatisfaction and this yearning for nostalgia and for who she used to be and who she used to hope she would be. Absolutely. I found that to be a really brave character for you to take on. I mean, I think you say really early in the film, like, I'm very self-destructive right now. And I feel like to take on someone who is leaning into those worst impulses because of a kind of uh, DNA level fear about what her life has turned out to be because of the age that she is right now, because they don't have kids. I, I feel like that's just a very vulnerable place to step into. Did you feel as an actress, did it feel like, well, I've already been playing this part, so this is her next story? Or did it feel like, okay, I'm going to take on some really difficult stuff right now and let's, and let's, let's get to it? You know, what's funny is I didn't even think about like the acting side of things until literally three days before we were about to film. Like usually as an actor, I am so prepared. I have everything done backwards, forwards, inside out. But uh, we were on a scout looking at locations and I realized, oh, crap. I don't have my lines memorized. Um, like I didn't know anything that I was supposed to be doing because I was so busy working on everyone else and making sure everyone else was prepared. Um, so like for me, I wasn't even like really scared or thinking like, oh no, I have to like do something kind of vulnerable. For me, it was more just like, um, I wanna make sure everyone else, all the other puzzle pieces fit before I, I focus on myself because then I can just blame myself if it doesn't work out, you know, like if, if I'm not giving a good or, or what I, and I'm not happy with my performance, I can just blame myself. But like, if everyone else is like failing and I haven't been there for them, then like that's, I don't want to, I don't want to have that responsibility. Quick break. Now that you've heard Lynn talking and about the film, I want to remind you that you can pre-order the film on iTunes. And if you do pre-order, you will receive, this is so cool, a handwritten personalized movie postcard from Lynn herself. All you have to do is send a screenshot of your receipt to IWillMakeYouMineFilm at gmail.com. And you can find all the details about this in the show notes. And now, before we get back to the interview, the trailer for I Will Make You Mine. I just want to say before I sing this, don't be offended, okay? This was like kind of a long time ago. Yeah, no I didn't. I didn't think I was gonna ever see you ever again. Got kids of your own? Uh, no. But you want them. I mean, I don't even have a boyfriend right now, so you guys got any single friends? Oh, shit, let's go. The guitar again? Yeah. Uh, I got your new song. You're finally writing again. I'm, uh, you yeah, know, here to help. Josh is cheating on me. Thinking about divorce? Should I text go? See if he still has a crush on you? I, I don't care. Yeah, right. I, I don't care. You're a horrible liar. I... Go, you're late. Where are you? I asked her to marry me. She obviously did not want that. I don't know what else I can do, you know? Oh God, that's depressing. I am depressed. Did you ever think you'd be a full-time dad? I always thought I'd have a family, but I also thought that I would still be able to play music, you know, like you. Do not compare your life with mine. You should still be playing. I just wonder if my race has already been run, you know? This is my oldest friend, Rachel. How old are you? We don't ask grown-ups that. All that history you guys have, I can't compete. That random musician, that go guy, you're having drinks with him in his motel room? 
I can't be this girl. I've got a life I've got to figure out too. What are we doing? I actually heard an interview with Bill Hader where he talks about making Barry and he said that he had forgotten about the acting part until he was on set day one, that everything was about the writing and how do I produce and, and all the various decisions that you have to have. And he said that he actually changed the entire first day of production to be entirely other people's dialogue. He cut all of his own dialogue. He's like, I'll figure it out by listening and hopefully by day two, I'll have some idea of what I'm doing. That's funny because I actually started all the fir- the whole shoot was all my, the, I was the entire first week since there's three characters we shot most of my stuff that first week, and um, it was almost like I I had like training wheels because I was back in front of the camera where I'm most comfortable and Dave Boyle who directed me in those other two movies he was my first AD in addition to being my producer and everything else and because he was behind the monitor I could just trust that if. I was like, I feel like I got it. Did we get it? And he said, yes, I could just move on. I very rarely watched playback unless it was like a super important scene. So that whole first week, it just felt like any other day on set for me. And then when I got behind the camera, it was like completely different. I I was so shocked at how different it felt for me to be you know, at that monitor and see everything and then to go up to the actors in between takes and really, you know, make those decisions and talk them through things. Um, It was a completely different feeling. It was a completely different experience uh, being on set, even like just like because I had shadowed a few directors before I before I directed. Like it's just completely different when you're, you know, at the helm of the ship and you're there and like have nothing else to do but that. Yeah, when every decision starts to flow through you, that's a different way of interacting with that entire set and every single person on there. Yeah. I'm curious, everyone, you know, since people are coming back to this world, they'd all had experiences of being directed by someone else. And now that person is there. And obviously he's able to, you know, help out in certain ways. He's directing when you're there, when, when you're on camera. Was it difficult to take full ownership of that? Was it difficult for the other actors to give into this is my director now and that's the first AD and those clean relationships? I don't think it was difficult. I think um, I think Dave was very conscious of this is Lynn's movie. So like even when we were doing rewrites, um, he would never, you know, say to me anything like rewrite this scene or, or he would never tell me what to do. He would just plant an idea and let and see what I thought, but like definitely coax me to take ownership of things. And so even when like, you know, there were things, decisions to be made, production decisions to be made that I had no clue about, I was like, please explain this to me like I'm a kindergartner because I have no clue what camera stuff you're talking about. He still made sure that I understood and that it was still my decision. And um, that's, that's a big credit to him, you know, like he purposefully, I think, like disappeared <laughs> when it came time for those things and and just acted he like whatever hat he was going to wear uh he wore that hat and respected it and it was kind of incredible um and i think because i had such a personal relationship with every single person involved in this movie um i don't think anybody had any issue of like who was in charge and who who to listen to 
at the end of the day. It's such a beautiful story. I hope anyone who's listening who feels maybe in any way um, stuck creatively, I'm hearing, you know, getting to do this podcast, I get to talk to people about how they find themselves in new creative situations or how they find themselves creatively empowered. And I feel like you have a lot of the ingredients that I keep kind of hearing in different ways. The, the vulnerability of going back to class and saying, I'm going to get creative in a different way because I'm feeling maybe a little bit stuck with where my acting is right now. The vulnerability of getting into writing and saying, I'm just going to try this. I'm going to trust that I've read a whole bunch of scripts in my life. I don't need a, a, a rigorous specific structure to do it. And then just incredible collaborators, whether that's starting in class where you feel like you're building things with other people and people just getting up to bat and swinging, you know, just taking a swing at it. To Dave, actually, like, nurturing and encouraging you, like, to put blinders on in the right places and that they'll support you in the right way, I feel like when people mix vulnerability, maybe not a a direct straight line to their dreams, and a really wonderful community, some beautiful things can happen. Do you feel like there's anything that's missing from from those kind of ingredients and what kind of got you behind behind the director's chair or in the director's chair? Uh, that was beautifully said. I, I agree with everything you said. I think, you know, um, there was a bit of magic that I felt every day. Um, and I know that that's like, it's funny because um, a lot of people have said this, myself included, because um, I've been a part of so many movies um, where they say, people will ask you, did you know when you were making it? that it was magic or did you know how special it was and you know the right thing to say is no we didn't we had no idea <laughs> but um so humble. there so are humble. there have been well there have been so many times that I have been on set and I'm like this is magic and and then it turns out like you watch the cut and it, it, it absolutely isn't or it just gets forgotten forever and you're like well I guess that wasn't so magical I guess that um, was fun that wasn't magic that was just yeah. that I had fun okay cool. <laughs> exactly but there were just too many there were just too many moments while we were filming where I just felt like there was a power higher. I don't know if it was like, I, honestly, I felt like it was like my dad was there because this movie is dedicated to my father. My, uh, there's the theme of uh, the, the death of the father in, in it. Um, my father's the re- like uh, a large portion of the fund for the, for the movie came from, you know, my father's savings. So we started filming on the anniversary of his death. Like, I don't know. (laughs) There is some magic in that. There is something. Like, not intentionally. It just happened to be. And there were just a lot of moments while we were filming. I I was so scared because, you know, I've been in, in, in enough movies to know, like, just how everything falls apart. And I just kept, like, waiting for, you know, the shit to hit the fan. And it just never did. Luckily, um, we just never really had any problems. Everything ran really smoothly. And I just feel like I feel like there was someone watching out for us in that sense, because there were a lot of things that could have gone wrong and and nothing did. So I would have to say, like, there is a bit of that magic that has to exist. And it's really hard to cultivate. But I think that 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 happens when you have a place of faith and um you know, part of what I described of getting back from John's class of that mojo was that faith. Because I'd say for a good decade, my narrative had been for everyone else, yes, 
but not for me. And part of something that happened that switched for me when I started going to class was, okay, maybe not for me yet, and maybe not for me for a long time, but maybe for me one day. And things started really switching for me. I mean, even after I filmed, uh, finished filming, I, I've been working nonstop, even like in the quarantine, I'm, I've been working as an actor. And I think a lot of that has come from that shift of um, I'm no longer somebody who watches as other people's dreams come true, but I'm somebody who actually makes my own dreams come true. I love trying to figure out what, how to take that concept of magic and figure out, okay, well, what, what is that magic? You know, like I'm a bit, speaking of magic, I'm a huge fan of the book, Big Magic, the Elizabeth Gilbert book. And one thing that she talks about in there is, is showing up creates magic. Showing up every day with a good attitude leads to summoning muses and leads to eventually our creativity aligning with what we want. But I also think, you know, watching your movie you, it, magic is a fair word for it, but you're working with a family that's been cultivated over a decade, over two different films and relationships that are artistic and have lasted a long time. And, and you're putting some deeply personal things into this movie, whether it's the funding coming from your father or the actual theme of that in the movie, the, the themes that you're really wrestling with as a creative. You know, there's that line in the movie, I think it's Go who says that, like, I think my race has already been run. And I, I don't know any actor over 30 who's not going to have some moment of thinking I've had that thought I've had that thought that thought scares me that thought has some truth in it and it might not I think when you get when you give that much of yourself and you bring and cultivate a community like that you can't guarantee magic every time but the the occurrence of magic shoots through the roof I feel like those ingredients are there to create something special and I it inspires me to want to rather than like, I want to be in that person's movie. It makes me want to bring my favorite collaborators even closer and say like, okay, well, what's your story? What's my story? And let's put that on film and see, see what the fuck happens then. I don't know. I think that could be fun. Um, I did want to ask you some questions about directing yourself and taking on just a whole bunch of challenges you hadn't had before. How do you avoid imposter syndrome? I have so many clients who are like, well, I'm, I'm not a writer, so I can't do it. Or I just, I feel like someone's going to catch me. How do you handle that? Um, I think acknowledging it is really important of like being like, I understand where I'm coming from with this, but I'm not going to entertain it. Um, I've heard so many times, women, especially women of color, especially of having the imposter syndrome. And I would just... You know, for myself, I, I actively had to say to myself, I've been on set more times than most directors. So that's number one. Number two, I've read more scripts than most people who, who, who do this. Um, so that's number two. And I, you know, as much as I was talking about magic and how great it felt and how nothing went wrong while we were filming, the scariest part for me by far after all of this, and, and I went through like, what I guess must have felt like postpartum afterwards, um, this depression that that hit me because what I realized was I don't know if what I'm trying to create will resonate with other people, and that has to be enough. And so I think a lot of imposter syndrome comes from this place of feeling like I don't think what I have to say is valid. 
and I don't think what my thoughts are, um, other people will feel is worthy. And I, you know, the worst parts, it was really hard for me uh, during post-production, much harder for me than any other thing I've ever had to do. Um, you know, I'm used to like with acting, letting go of a character, but I was not used to letting go of like 12 characters, 12 characters whose costumes and props and everything about them I had to think about, their backstories, every thought that they were thinking I had to think about. So when I was letting them go, I went like, I don't, I don't want to say I went crazy, but I was very confused. I was like trying so hard to like find who out who I was again. And it was really difficult for me to latch on to, to who I used to be because I had changed after living with these characters. And when we were testing the movie and showing it to different people to see if it, you know, made sense to them. And, you know, if you ask somebody to look for something that's wrong and they start telling you and then you hear nothing but everything that's wrong, you start to believe that you are a piece of shit. And who am I to be doing this? And who am I to think that, like, anybody wants to hear what I have to say? And I, and I really struggled with that to the point where um, there were certain moments when, yes, it was very clear, like, oh, this storyline doesn't make sense. We're going to have to find something else or, or move it around or do some ADR or maybe possibly even reshoot. Um, those things were very clear. But there were other parts of it that were like, mm, I feel very strongly that this is the way to tell the story. And to me, it makes sense. But to five or six other people, it doesn't make sense. They're watching it and it doesn't make sense to them. And I'm just like, like, that's when the imposter syndrome started to to come in for me. Because for me, I was like, well, who am I? Like, I, who am, I'm a first time filmmaker. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. So maybe they're right. Maybe like these people who are in the industry watching this are telling me like, you need to fix this. Maybe I have to fix it, even though I don't feel I really have to. Mm. Um, and that was really, really difficult. Ultimately, I, I think I... You know, there were a lot of moments when I didn't, I didn't change. And I went against the advice of Dave and I went against the advice of other people who were like, maybe you should cut this scene or maybe we should add, we should do a reshoot for this. And um, there was just something in my gut that was like, no. And I knew that, um, I knew that this movie was going to be my only chance ever to tell my story. Um, I don't even know if I'll ever make another movie again. I mean, I sure hope so, but like the amount of, um, the amount of energy and time and everything that went into it, uh, I don't know if I can keep doing that. And I don't know if someone's just going to hand me a movie to direct again. So, um, I just knew like, I have to tell the story my way and it doesn't really matter what other people think, because if I don't do it my way and, um, and I do it their way, and then people still don't get it, I'm really gonna be mad at myself. Yeah. So I'm really glad that I went through that because honestly, I didn't think that we were gonna get into South by. I didn't think we were going to sell this movie. I honestly thought that after, um, after we were doing those cuts and I was showing it to people, I thought, well, everyone on Kickstarter who <laughs> gave us money, they'll see the Vimeo link and, um, and I think that's going to have to be enough because I did make the movie I wanted to make. And so the fact that it has been getting 
really great reviews and that almost almost every review has like hit upon those things that I almost cut out or that I almost changed and that it spoke to somebody is just um yeah, I want to say to anybody who feels like they're an imposter to just like, I know it's so cheesy, but like, you got to believe in yourself because of that. I think I'm getting like emotional talking about it because it's like means I know what it feels like to feel like you're not enough. It's really scary. It feels like a universal thing for creatives and that really the truth is not feeling like an imposter. It's either having the ability to somehow keep going anyway or to cultivate the constructive voices around you that rise you up and and help you through that which it seems like you have the right combination of both of those things thank you for sharing that i appreciate oh that. thank you thank you for <laughs> listening i mean i again like i know that a lot of your audience is actors and so like who knows better what this feels like than an actor who like our job is to keep going when we've been told no constantly sometimes to our face and most times not most times we're just left there with our thoughts and learning to um, learning to manage those thoughts and learning to shift those thoughts is just as much a part of being an actor as like memorizing your lines and, you know, learning the craft. Absolutely. Um, I want to ask you a little bit, uh, just on a couple things. So you kickstarted for the movie mixed with some family money that came in. Was there any, any interesting story along the way or anything you learned about the crowdfunding effort? Yes, I did learn that um, if you're going to do it, you better make sure that you're going that, that whatever you're funding or whatever you're asking for people's help with is something you really believe in. I truly believe that. Uh, I'm really actually glad that I didn't do a short first. Um, I know that goes against like a lot of advice that people give. Um, but for me, I'm really glad that I didn't because, I don't know if I could ask people to do what they did again. A lot of my crowdfunding came, yes, from strangers, but a lot of it came from people I knew. And a lot of it came from people I knew because they were willing to put themselves on the line for me too, because they saw how important it was to me. And so because of that, I wouldn't want to ask anybody to give me money or to vouch for me unless they knew that I was going to be creating something that I really believed in. I didn't want, I wouldn't want somebody to do that and then just be like, well, we'll see what happens. Um, even though there was like an element of that also, it's not like I was like, this is the investment and this is the return. I didn't like know that, but still at the same time, I really truly believed in what I was doing. And so, um, going back to the whole thing about, um, not, uh, doing a short first, I'm really glad that I didn't do that because I, I feel like I, I felt invested to this audience that uh, this Kickstarter audience that in, had invested money. And I think if that had been less or if the stakes hadn't been as high with a feature, I honestly probably would have never delivered. Uh, probably after th that first bad test screening, I would have <laughs> probably been like, well, we made, a, we made a mistake and it will never happen again. <laughs> and <laughs> and, uh, and I suddenly understood why there were so many shorts that I've been in, that I've never seen the light of day. It made sense to me. So w just to get really just in the weeds about it for one second, um, 
you guys obviously had two shorts that you could use as part of a Kickstarter, you know, to say we're continuing this world. Did, had you shot any of the movie before you kickstarted? Was it to kind of help with a specific piece? Because um, I know some people say shoot half of the movie if you possibly can on some budget and then get them, you know, the money to finish it or get the money for post. So where, we actually did, did two shoots. So uh, the reason being so for two reasons. Number one, because one of my actresses, uh, Ayako Fujitani, who plays Erica, she just had just had a baby. So for her, she was like, I can't do this right now. But everyone else could. And our DP who shot the first two movies, he is a professor uh, in Utah. So he could only do it in the summer and right before Thanksgiving or during Thanksgiving. So we decided to break it up into two shoots. And so when we did that, we did um, fund with my own money and with uh, Dave's production company, Grey Hat Productions. Um, we funded the first part. And then for the second part, uh, we, uh, we then we kickstarted between and then we used the Kickstarter money. And it was great because then we had like EPK on set um, and they filmed it. And I really think like a great Kickstarter video sells itself. Absolutely. Uh, it also feels... I don't. Maybe this is personal, but when I see that people have already started the process, it's like, oh, you're not, you're not asking for cash to like hopefully make a movie. You're making a movie. You've already put in the blood, sweat, and tears, and you've put in your own money. You've shown up, and now you're asking for help to collaborate, to finish, to help grow something that already exists. Which I feel like is a very appropriate role for somebody giving money at that point where it's like, I'm going to nurture something. I'm going to become a part of something that is real. Um, I think that's an easier sell. And I think it's easier to feel like you're a part of something at that point. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. true. Um, I want to ask you about being a filmmaker this year. Uh, this is, you know, look, um, obviously there are people who are, who are suffering and having a much higher degree of difficulty in life dealing with COVID than, than filmmakers. But um, it does have to be hard getting into South by Southwest with your debut feature and not getting to be there, not getting to have that screening. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how South by has tried to help and, uh, and what that experience has been like? So, you know, when South by happened, it was kind of before it was before sheltering in place in Los Angeles, certainly. And um, so when it happened, it was like this huge shock for a lot of people and this realization that things were more serious than we thought. And, um, you know, it was like kind of crazy for them. So we weren't really hearing much from them. But what happened, one of the silver linings from this is that all the filmmakers got together right away. We all banded together because we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know how to proceed. We had been hearing different things. Um, so immediately... Did they put you in the, touch with each other when you say all the filmmakers banded no. together? How did that? We, we found one another. We we um, a lot of us just uh, like went on social media, like started to find one another. Um, so a lot of uh, like I was in the visions category, so a lot of the visions category uh, directors came together, and then I helped organize a group of all the narrative feature uh, female directors. So that was like another group, and like. We just wanted to know what are you going to do about, you know, sales? What are you going to do about promotion? What do you what like is South by going to do another screening like a, a virtual screening? Uh, what What's going to happen? Did they end it up was very doing a virtual screening. They ended up doing one through Amazon, but uh, only five percent of the feature directors ended up opting in because it doesn't really make sense uh, when you have a movie uh, coming out or when you're trying to sell 
to different distribution companies to already have it available that way. Um, okay. It's yeah. not the same, you know. But um, it was obviously very, very upsetting. I had actually been to South by Southwest the year before with the movie I was in. Um, and I had done the whole film festival circuit over the year and cultivated all of these relationships. Many of the films, film, film festivals uh, accepted I Will Make You Mine. So there was like a tour that I had been planning to do, a spring tour uh, every week, basically, traveling until May uh, 26 when the movie was coming out I thought oh this is great we'll show the movie it'll you know it's shot in black and white it's a music movie uh, it's supposed to be in theaters uh, I'll be there with an audience go and Ye Ming can come and they can perform yeah. this is great you know like we are opening the San Francisco Asian Film Festival which always opens at the Castro Theater which is a 1400 seat theater mm-hmm. um, that's very upsetting because you know those are things that you can't you can't you can't replace that virtually. You just can't. And so obviously very sad. But that said, um, there's been incredible, like other than the um, the filmmakers all, you know, getting together and getting to know one another in a way that I don't think we would have if we had been at South by promoting our own films. You know, maybe we would have seen each other's. But like now we're like emailing one another advice, you know, as filmmakers. And um that's sort of that. That's very special, but also the fact that uh, the press they have time to cover movies that they normally wouldn't have. Um, I had been thinking initially when we um, when we were when South by was canceled. I was thinking, well, movie theaters will be open by May twenty six for sure. Maybe we should forewall the movie, which means to put the movie uh, into theaters yourself, uh, because our distribution deal was not for theatrical; it was just for. Uh, video on demand and DVD. So I was like, maybe I'll, you know, pay for the movie to like actually be in a theater in New York and LA so I can like actually see it on the big screen and maybe like the New York Times can like review it, you know, then and maybe it'll be like, uh, we'll be, we can be considered for some awards, you know, because of that. And, um, and, and it felt like that was like a lot of the budget we didn't have. But like at that point, I was just feeling so desperate, you know, for it to see an audience. Um, but um, obviously that's not happening. But I will say that we are getting my publicist was like, I have not seen an indie film get press like this uh, because, you know, of, of what's ha- partially because of the movie, but also partially because of the situation that's going on. People can be home and they can watch things and they're willing to look at things. I think a lot of people, because South By was before the cancellation of Tribeca, before the cancellation of Cannes, uh, everyone has like a, I think they have a sympathy towards South by Southwest filmmakers because uh, we were the first. And um, so that's that's been the good thing. Um, and it's sad because like, I don't know what's going to happen with South by next year. They've tried to make it up to us, you know, but it's it's hard. It's hard. I'm. Sh- they lost a lot of money too, and um, we, they promised to like help promote us in ways that, uh, forever for the rest of our careers, basically, <laughs> um, in a way that they wouldn't for anyone else because of what happened. But I don't know. Who knows what 2021 will look like? 
Yeah. You mentioned that this is a music movie. I'm not sure if I hit that hard enough at the beginning. And it's got beautiful music in it. Is there a way? Are you going to release the soundtrack? Is that something? That yeah, you can at? you can stream the soundtrack on uh, Spotify on IWillMakeYouMind.com. We have a section, an, an extra section section where I'll put the director's commentary. There's a link to stream the soundtrack by Go Nakamura and Yeaming Chen. And then um, we'll also we also have like Zoom backgrounds and stuff Amazing. that people can use. <laughs> See, everything evolves. Everything evolves. Yeah. You would never have been on a Zoom background if you'd performed live at, you know, South by. So you never. Yeah, know. no, that's that's very true. Cost benefit analysis. Um, speaking of the music, how much of it was created for the film, and how much, you know, obviously Go and Yaming have music careers and 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 catalogs. How much of it was new? How much of it was made for the film? Was any of it made by anyone else? Uh, Go did all of the. Um, the score, so all of the music that you hear throughout the movie that's not them singing is Go. Uh, and then Ye Ming and Go only wrote two songs, each of them wrote one song for the movie. One is the song that plays during the end credit sequence that Go sings, and the other one is the song called Eskimo Eyes that Ye Ming serenades to Go. Um, which by was completely by accident, by the way. So all the mo- all the movie songs had already existed and have existed for years, and I kind of wrote the script around that music. And actually, the reason the movie is called "I Will Make You Mine" is because we just went through all of Ye Ming's songs and said the names out loud. And I was like, "That's a movie. That's a movie. That's not a movie. That's a movie. That's a movie." And then "I Will Make You Mine" like just kept coming back to me, and I was like, "All right, that that could be a movie. Let's let's listen to those lyrics." And when we listened to it, I was like, yeah, that, that makes sense. So I kind of wrote the movie around, you know, the lyrics and around the songs that they sang. Well, gosh, it, it, it feels organic enough to this story that it feels in reverse. I mean, it feels like that is the relationship all three women have with Go temporarily. It's like, I, I want to look at you in this way of my life or want to recontextualize my history with you like this. And he's just trying to take care of his daughter and kind of get through each day. That's it's a beautiful organic alchemy that's happening for you there. Um, I felt really, really lucky that we had, you know, basically all music cleared, which no filmmaker gets. Like, no filmmaker gets to go in with the music beforehand. No, like, not have to do temp soundtrack. Not to not have to do anything. That. Just, like, have the library you know, what a luxury. And it's that some was. stunning music, too. Uh, I mean, it's I, I, the songs are beautiful, but I was really taken by the score throughout. I was I was hoping to hear that he had written all of that because there is a there is something dreamlike to the way he plays the guitar that I feel like really matches with the black and white that matches with the feeling of nostalgia. And um, even at the end where it starts acoustic and then bursts into kind of electric as the credits hit, there's something about the way that music and art and our memories are larger than our life at times that just mm-hmm. felt just it felt visceral and it felt like you were able to tell the story through the music and not through just telling me what the story had to be so i thought that, that was uh that was beautiful i really appreciate that and i hope people stream the music along with the with the movie um i wanted to ask about you know, i don't want to give away anything in the movie um but i did want to ask a little bit because there's some fun scenes that you have with go i'm not going to get into too much of the the meat of them but i feel like they turn out differently than you would expect if this was like a rom-com that there's some things that happen between people who've known each other for a long time and i'm wondering if the way that that story went for rachel and go was something were you trying to upend a genre or do you feel like that just ended up happening by allowing their story to run its course? 
I'm thinking of so the I, scene I in the think hotel. You're, I think I know outside. which scene you're referring to. Is it the hotel scene? There's the, the hotel scene, scene, and then you see him again afterwards, and something yes. happens between the two of you that's never happened before. And I feel like if this was Sleepless in Seattle, that's just a different thing. And we, and our, I think as an audience, I was trained to think this story might go one way, and it yeah. doesn't. And I'm wondering how conscious that was versus this is the story as it is. I think it was very conscious because it's uh, the motel scene in particular is parallel it's a parallel to something that happens in the first movie um and so like it's it's this idea of revisiting who you used to be and seeing like can i you know like i think we have like these romantic notions of like ah if only i knew now what i knew then i do everything differently and then actually putting yourself in that situation and seeing like actually it's worse <laughs> it's actually worse than how you imagine it would be it's much more awkward and actually the reason it happened was because it was supposed to have happened and that was what I wanted to show because I didn't I really wanted to feel like um growing older is this this dance of like uh things are not quite as romantic and not quite as vivid and not quite as lovely as we imagine them to be. But like then at the same time in the acceptance of that, like harsh reality, it's like, that's part of what's getting older is like, is that acceptance and like being okay with it, not only okay with it, but like thriving on it. Like just being like, I did that. It's over. We've moved on. (laughs) That ship has sailed. That song has been sung. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like as a filmmaker and a writer that the movie has a point of view on who's maybe living their life the best or living, you know, that their choices maybe are more positive in your mind? Um, I, I mean, you mean who, which character has like yeah. the happiest ending or, or just do you, do you feel like the movie puts a value judgment on, uh, on the way people are living their lives? You know, do, not that yeah, better or like- worse, but maybe like maybe that person's happier, that kind of value judgment. I think that I just tried to really show, um, you know, because I really wanted to just end everyone's story and like make it very crystal clear of who ended up with who. No cliffhangers. And that said, like some people weren't happy with some of the endings. Some, some people weren't happy with happy endings. They were really, really unhappy, actually, when they're during those uh, during those test shoots. They were like, I don't like I don't like that. This is how she ended up or who she ended up with. And um I I feel like that's real life, where if you go on Facebook and you're like, I wonder about that person from high school, and you go and you're like, oh, she married him? Him? Yeah. Uh, like, you know, like, ugh. But, you know, who are we to judge them, even if, like, their Facebook feed looks like our worst nightmare? <laughs> like, that's their life. And, you know, that's where they ended up. And so I feel like that was what I was trying to show, that that's the reality of of life of, of of seeing that like happy endings are not always what you would consider to be your own happy ending and i think that that's where we get into trouble a lot is you know as we as we get older we're like this happy ending is not what i envision for myself so therefore i can't really be happy that matches with my experience of the movie where i feel yeah i feel like you do really allow for these people to have honest conclusions to their stories at the same time there's something watching Ye Ming in that in your film where she is always smiling creating dancing 
edict. Like there's this, like her life is a gerund. She's like, she is always in action. And there's something that seems like that one of the themes buried beneath is that there's no one way to live your life, but creating does lead to a certain amount of happiness. She seems the least stilted in that. Is that, do you feel like that's on purpose or conscious or is that just me reading into it and projecting? I think, I mean, maybe it's not, it's no, I guess it's not conscious, but I guess that is like how I feel too. You know, like it's when I'm like doing all of those things and living that I feel the most alive and happiest. Because that character just seems to be the most in motion and she brings that out of go for a little while. God, I love that scene of them beginning to write the song together and just like fucking around on the keyboard and the, and the guitar and, and just seeing two artists collaborate and all of a sudden the, the, the bullshit of their life, the difficulties that always, you know, get draped onto it just seem to, he just seems so much lighter in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it feels it's like, like the old go that yeah. you, you would see in the first two movies that like, I think if you hadn't, you'd be like, why is everyone going after this guy who like has no money, sleeps in a weird motel as a kid? Like but to me, all those that was things, one of my but... favorite things about the movie was that it wasn't an idealized version of something. He felt so deeply human to me. He felt like a really talented, kind everyman in a way that felt so much more relatable as someone who is a creative but isn't, you know, uh, Brad Pitt or always, you know, the most like always successful that it just felt like that's honest it felt like something where what he expresses and 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 what he brings out of people what he makes people feel is as powerful as those things it felt very human in that way and i i enjoyed that a lot i'm so happy to hear that yeah if i wanted to ever see the two short films if anybody listening wants to see the shorts before they saw the feature or after is there a way to do that yes they're both actually available they so the first movie has been restored and re-released. It was not available for a while, but now it's back. It's on iTunes. That's Surrogate you can also buy Valentine? The, the, it's called Surrogate Valentine. It's also on DVD. Um, and then the uh, second movie is actually streaming for free on Tubi and also uh, Amazon Prime, actually. Great. You can, watch, you can watch it for free on Amazon Prime. Okay. Daylight awesome. Savings. Um, I will make you mine. It's going to be available for streaming May 26th. Anywhere that you can stream or uh, or purchase on your Apple devices or anything like that. Um, Lynn, before we go, is there anything else that we haven't hit that you want to call out? I just want to shout out to uh, Christina Paterno, who uh, is in the movie. She is also a John Rosenfeld student, and she and I met uh, in John's class. Oh, and so, I mean... I, I almost actually cast her and another actress from a John class, um, but I found out as we were editing the movie, I was like, I got too many girls in this. <laughs> too many girls with dark hair. I, I need like a gay man. <laughs> and that's how the salesperson came about. Amazing. Bernie the salesperson. Because he's, he's blonde and gay. <laughs> We need other viewpoints. We need to just fill out this world a little bit. But yeah, it's just like, you never know these relationships that you cultivate um, in class, like that you really like when you're sitting around playing, you never know like how they'll end up living forever on the, on the somewhat big screen. Yeah. Well, I, I really did love it to me. This is exactly what I want to watch in quarantine. You know, it's, it's funny. Somebody had recently uh, recommended the Amazon show upload to me. And the show's fine, but it's about death and technology. And guess what I don't want to deal with is either of those things. I don't want to see people like dealing with their phones or fancy gadgets or contemplating their mortality. I want to see people 
touching each other, making music, affecting each other's lives. I want slice of life in a way that actually makes me feel human and alive. And I feel like your movie absolutely did that. And I just, I... I I felt a lot of things. I felt some of the good emotions about being human. I felt some of the tougher ones, and I, I felt happy for experiencing all of them. So thank you for making such a beautiful film and sharing it. Thank you, Brian. That means a lot to me. I'm really happy to hear you say that. Absolutely. Well, thank you uh, for letting me share and cry. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, so maybe, uh, you know, when I know you don't know when that next feature is going to happen, but when it inevitably does, I, I hope to have you back on here. And uh, who knows, maybe we can record in person and talk all about it. Oh, that would be a dream come true. I can't wait. Awesome. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for being on Industry Town. Everyone, check out our movie. Watch it. Stream it. May 26th. I will make you mine. There'll be all sorts of links in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your weekend. And that is it for today's episode. Thank you to Lynn. Thank you to presenting sponsors, John Rosenfeld Studios and Actor Salon. And thank you most of all to you for listening. Please don't forget to pre-order I Will Make You Mine on iTunes and stream it when it's available on May 26th. If you're enjoying Industry Town and you made it this far, please check us out on social media, Instagram and Facebook, at Industry Town Podcast. And please consider giving us a review on iTunes and Spotify. Lastly, check back on this feed later this week because there will be a bonus episode of the pod with a fun announcement from myself and Patrick Cavanaugh, and then the audio from my happy hour conversation with John and True Blood's Joe Manganiello. 